0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast, and Part 2 of Surviving the Lusitania. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. It's great to be with you today. The 18 minutes of trying times that took place from the time when the torpedo struck to the sinking of the big passenger liner, and then the hours spent trying to survive in the 52-degree water until rescue ships reached them, all became a story of life and death and survival or not. In many cases, people survived the sinking, but not the cold water. Sometimes survival was just a matter of dumb luck. In other instances, it depended upon making the right decision under extremely stressful circumstances in a short amount of time, which saved lives. In a time of crisis, many people enter a state of shock and end up just staring blankly at what's going on around them, often becoming victims just through inaction or following the actions of others. Then again, some people snap into a heightened sense of being and often are able to override panic and fear and help themselves and others. Heroism on the Lusitania far outweighed cowardice, and the stories of some of these heroes follows here. Other stories will be covered here as well, like that of the German spies which were aboard the Lusitania and how they were discovered. There were also trials and hearings as well, and of course, many lawsuits filed against Cunard for negligence. We'll explore the results of those trials and the aftermath as well. And there are many who believe that the sinking of the Lusitania was part of a conspiracy hatched by the British Admiralty to create enough outrage in America to cause them to join the war effort against Germany. The Admiralty's legal team did much to stifle certain types of testimony that leaned that way. We'll share more on the cover-up from the website rmslusitania.info. Specifically, the article titled a liberal coat of whitewash, which I think you'll find very interesting, and will guide you to a newly discovered document up which sheds more light on that cover-up. There are dozens of human stories to be shared here. First, we promised the story of Broadway producer Charles Froman, and here it is. On the day of sailing, mysterious telegrams began to arrive in the ship's Marconi room, addressed to prominent passengers. It was rumored that one was addressed to American theater manager and producer Charles Froman. Those messages warned specifically against sailing on the ship. Charles had had numerous conversations with his brother David, who also knew about the submarine threat, and warned his brother not to go. Charles Froman, in 1915, was 58 years old, and he was the man credited for creating the Broadway star system. His most notable play was James Barry's Peter Pan, which was a huge success. He was making the trip because he wanted to check out the European play markets. On board, Charles briefly stood with Captain Turner and Alfred Vanderbilt for the press to have a field day. Both Turner and Vanderbilt dismissed the warnings issued by the German embassy. When asked why Charles wasn't sailing with Ellen Terry aboard the New York, he answered by saying that actress Rita Jolivet was sailing with them on the Lusitania. In addition to Rita Jolivet, Also aboard the Lusitania were actresses under his management, Millie Baker and Amelia McDonough. Anne Murdoch, probably his last star, sent a bon voyage basket filled with flowers, fruit, and candy in the shape of a ship. In a thank-you note that the ship's pilot delivered, Charles wrote to Anne, This little ship you sent is more wonderful than the big one that takes me away from you. For most of the voyage, Charles spent his time in his cabin, B-75, following his usual routine, reading new scripts, eating candy, and playing his favorite song, Irving Berlin's Alexander's Ragtime Band, on his portable phonograph. Because of his shyness and the pain from his right knee, he took many of his meals in his suite. He would refuse many invitations from his fellow passengers to join them. The pain from his knee stopped him from doing too much walking aboard the ship. On Tuesday, May 4th, Charles asked William to call for Dr. James McDermott as his leg pain had worsened. At lunch the next day, Friday, May 7th, Charles sat with his theatrical friends at the dining room center table. Afterwards, he, George Vernon, and Captain Alex Scott were on the port side boat deck chatting by the Veranda Cafe when the torpedo hit. The following events were reported by Rita Jolivet, both in subsequent interview and in her evidence to the inquiry board. She was the only survivor of the group who were together at the end when Rita reached them charles was smoking a cigar he was calm and apparently undisturbed scott went below and returned with two life belts rita had her own so scott gave one to the reluctant charles finally he accepted it referring to the germans he said i didn't think they'd do it as the ship began to list charles said to rita you'd better hold on the rail and save your strength the list became greater and here Charles spoke his most quoted line. Why fear death? It's the most beautiful adventure. Rita recognized this as paraphrasing a line from Peter Pan. That line being, to die will be an awfully big adventure. Rita was then seized by the sudden fear that Charles, who needed his cane, would not be able to manage in the water. Rita's evidence to the inquiry board reveals, firsthand, the emotion and drama of the sinking, We'll read a part of Rita's testimony that we didn't share in part one. She said, My brother-in-law took hold of my hand, and I took hold of Mr. Frohman, and we went out through the door onto the deck, and the water swept me away from my brother-in-law and from Mr. Frohman, swept me with such force that my buttoned boots were swept off my feet. I was struck under the water. I sank down twice. When I got up again, there was an upturned boat on which I put my hand and clung to. The boat I clung to had canvas on it and as a great many other people were clinging on to it, we were sinking, and then came from under it a collapsible boat that carried away the extra people. We remained out there for three hours and a half, and were picked up by a Welsh collier. Charles' body was recovered the following day. The first to recognize him was Oliver Bernard, a theatrical designer, who saw Charles's body in the Queenstown Impromptu Morgue. Oliver said that Charles looked peaceful, as if he'd never put up a struggle against the sea. In Daniel Froman's autobiography, written in 1935, he states, "...some time afterwards I was told that his death was not caused by drowning, but that, before being immersed in the water, he was killed by some heavy object that fell upon him." There has been more than one apocryphal tale to appear following Charles's death. The following is perhaps the strangest, leaving the reader to make of it what they will, as no reference to it appears in Daniel Froman's biography of his brother. "...the night of the sinking," John Ryland, one of Charles' office staff at the Empire Theater in New York, was inspecting the building at closing time when he saw Charles sitting at his desk in his fifth-floor office. The light was on, and Charles was looking over all his pictures and theater memorabilia that he had laid out on top of his desk. Ryland was perplexed, as he had seen Charles off on the Lusitania only a few days prior. He asked why Charles was back and if there was anything he could do. Charles just shook his head, saying, "'No, you can't help me, John. "'Just leave me here alone for a few minutes. "'Thanks, and goodbye.'" Ryland left the room and soon returned with the house manager, two box office boys, a press agent, and Charles' office boy, Peter Mason, all of them unbelieving. The office was dark, empty, and everything was where it was supposed to be. The men laughed at Ryland, although some were unsettled by his insistence of what he saw. After hearing of Charles' death, Rylan swore off going back to the office again despite continuing to work at the theater for the next 20 or so years. Another story relates to the famous popular music composer Jerome Kern. Some publications state that Kern was meant to travel with Charles because he wrote the music for the Barry Review, but that Kern overslept and missed the boat. There is no evidence of this in any Kern biography and it is likely that it was a story invented by a journalist. In any event, His name does not appear on the did not sale list. A third story involves a lady named Joan Grant who regarded herself as a sensitive with the ability to see the departed spirits of the dead and who with her husband Charles was dining at the grill room of the Savoy Hotel in London towards the end of the second world war in 1944. Having been shown to an empty table and seated with her back to a square pillar Mrs. Grant became disturbed because she sensed the presence of a disembodied spirit in the chair. The Titanic Commutator, a publication of the Titanic Historical Society, continues the story. Charles Grant pointed out to his wife that there were no other tables available, suggesting that she try and ignore the spirit. Joan was unable to do this, however. She told her husband that the spirit was male and that he had been dead for 20 or 30 years, She sensed too that he was somehow bound to the earthly plane because he had forgotten his real friends. And so the spirit sat by himself in a chair while the years passed and life flowed on in the restaurant around him. Joan Grant then decided to help the lone spirit and offered thoughts of affection and kindness to the ghost until his loneliness was dissipated. Several departed friends of the spirit apparently then appeared and helped him to leave his earthly prison. The report concluded, After the Grants had finished their dinner and arose to leave, Joan noticed a small brass plaque affixed to the column behind her chair. It read, This table was regularly used by Charles Frohman for many years, up to 1915. Froman had indeed been a regular customer of the Savoy Hotel for many years before his death on the Lusitania, and he usually sat in the same place in the same chair often discussing designs for theatrical sets with the famous writer of children's books, J.M. Barrie, whose plays Froman featured in his theaters both in America and Great Britain, one of those being Peter Pan. The shock to his family and friends of Charles' loss cannot be overstated, and he has never been forgotten. There is a small irony in Charles's choice of ship on the 1st of May. He rejected the liner New York, for being a lover of all things British... He chose the Lusitania. The irony occurred when it was the New York which transported Charles's body back home on the liner's return journey from Liverpool. It's hard not to compare the sinkings of the Titanic and the Lusitania, which happened almost three years apart, with the Titanic coming first. Both British ocean liners had been the largest ships in the world when first launched, and both were ostentatiously luxurious designed to ferry the world's wealthiest passengers between Europe and the United States in comfort and elegance. The difference, of course, was what sunk them, an iceberg for the Titanic on her maiden voyage in 1912 and a German torpedo for the Lusitania on her 201st voyage on May 7, 1915. Just before the Lusitania left New York, bound for Liverpool, As we covered in Part 1, German officials posted notices in American newspapers warning that any ship under British flag, including merchant vessels and passenger liners, as the war between the nations intensified. But not everyone believed that the German Navy would follow through on the threat. Notable doubters included Winston Churchill and the Lusitania's captain W.T. Turner, who told a reporter, It's the best joke I've heard many days, this talk of torpedoing. Also, among the doubters were 128 American passengers who died along with more than 1,000 others when the Lusitania did sink, compared to roughly 1,500 people lost on the Titanic. The list of the dead from both vessels might have been ripped from the Society pages. Among those who died on the Titanic were Benjamin Guggenheim, heir to his family's vast mining fortune, Isidor Strauss, co-owner of Macy's, and John Jacob Astor IV, widely reported at that time to be the richest man in the world. Lost on the Lusitania were famed Broadway producer Charles Froman, whose story was just shared here, fashion designer Kerry Kennedy, and millionaire sportsman Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt, who was on his way to England to lead the annual meeting of the International Horse Breeders Association. The small world of the immensely wealthy created a number of eerie connections between the two doomed ships. Vanderbilt, for example, had been booked on the Titanic three years earlier, but didn't sail. Lady Duff Gordon, one of the most famous Titanic survivors, had a ticket for the Lusitania, but cancelled at the last minute for health reasons. Despite their similarities, however, the two ships were a sociological study of contrast in the human response to imminent disaster. On the Titanic, women and children, and the very wealthy, were more likely to be saved during an ordered evacuation effort that followed the social rules of the day. On the Lusitania, chaos reigned, and the fittest often fought for survival, and lost, however, as many lifeboats didn't end up saving lives. In a big way, the difference had to do with the time it took the two ships to sink. Titanic passengers had two hours and forty minutes to sort out a system, while the Lusitania went down in only eighteen minutes, meaning there was very little time to advance beyond a fight-or-flight response. Furthermore, everyone aboard the Lusitania was keenly aware of how things had turned out on the Titanic three years earlier. They were, therefore, disabused of the idea that there was any such thing as a ship that was too grand to sink, their own included. There has been much controversy over the actions of the captain and crew of the Lusitania, and whether or not the ship was carrying explosives which actually caused the second explosion. And we'll discuss that as we go forward. There are hundreds of stories from the Lusitania. It should be noted that months of inquiries took place which resulted in no-fault judgments against Cunard Lines and the ship's captain, a decision which many felt was wrong. The blame was placed squarely upon Germany, and anti-German protests broke out all over London. Many stories related by passengers tell of men and women who forced their way into lifeboats, the days of chivalry having disappeared with the Titanic, but many more talk of heroic actions, and these are just a few. A good place to begin is with Robert James Timmis. Many stories of Lusitania heroism were told of men who assisted women and children, even to the point of giving them their own life jackets. In some cases, that decision to ensure the safety of others resulted in the death of the hero, as in the case of Alfred J. Vanderbilt and R.T. Moody. But in at least one case, that sacrificial act didn't mean the end for the hero. Robert J. Timmis of Gainesville, Texas, was eating ice cream in the dining saloon on Lusitania when he felt the torpedo hit the ship. Eventually, he and his colleague R.T. Moody made their way to the deck where they helped with the lowering of a lifeboat. Timmis was approached by a woman, to whom he gave his life jacket, and then a family, believed to be the Chantries, whom he assisted. Harold Chantry, sick with tuberculosis, asked Timmis if he thought his wife Mina and the baby would survive the sinking. Timmis candidly replied, I think so, but you won't. The entire Chantry family would later be counted with the dead. A newspaper article which covers that reads, R.J. Timmis of Gainesville, Texas, was returning to England for his yearly visit, accompanied by his friend R.T. Moody, also of Gainesville. Both men gave their lifebelts to steerage women just as the Lusitania sank. Timmis, who was a strong swimmer, remained in the water, clinging to various objects for nearly three hours Then he was taken into a boat, in which he still had the strength to assist in rowing. The boat began picking up all those showing signs of life, and the first person rescued was the half-conscious steerage woman to whom Timmis had given his life belt. Moody sank when the ship went under and, although a good swimmer, was not seen again. Thomas Sildell of New York was interviewed in London yesterday and said he saw Alfred G. Vanderbilt on the deck of the Lusitania as the vessel was going down. Mr. Vanderbilt, who could not swim, was equipped with a lifebelt. Mr. Sildell said, but he gallantly took it off and placed it around a young woman. Then he went off to seek another lifebelt, but the ship sank just a few seconds later. Mr. Timmis survived the Lusitania tragedy and lived for another 24 years, although exposure to the salt water during his ordeal affected his eyesight. He died in Texas in 1939. We'll return with more stories right after these sponsor messages. Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And now back to Surviving the Lusitania, Part 2. This is a story about survivor Elizabeth Duckworth. Elizabeth Duckworth of Taftville, Connecticut, United States, was aboard the Lusitania to travel to her old home in England. On board, she made friends with Alice Scott and her son, Arthur. During the sinking, she assisted Arthur into a lifeboat. She almost boarded lifeboat number 17, which overturned, killing Alice Scott. Elizabeth was rescued by the fishing trawler Wanderer, which is also called Peel 12, and displayed heroism by going back into the lifeboats to rescue more people out of the water. On the day of the disaster, Elizabeth had just finished lunch and went to walk on deck with Arthur when they saw what they thought was a fish. Alice was in her room at that time, recovering from a headache. Then the torpedoes struck. Elizabeth felt the ship shake from stem to stern, and with hot cinders raining down, they rushed to their forward deck. There, they were told that there was a gaping hole in the Lusitania's side, and that the ship was indeed going to sink by the bow, where they were standing. The Lusitania was beginning to roll over, and it seemed that it was only a matter of time before the ocean reached them. Panicking, Elizabeth and Arthur started climbing the ship's rigging. An officer, perhaps Second Officer Hefford or First Officer Piper, ran after them and persuaded them in a calm voice to come down. He told them that a lifeboat was ready for them on the promenade deck. Elizabeth then told Arthur Scott to slide down the rope ladder and that she would catch him. Little Arthur was too scared to do so, but Elizabeth shouted, Come on, or you'll be lost. Arthur finally gathered himself together and slid down. Elizabeth, however, missed catching him, and Arthur landed on the deck on his back with the wind knocked out of him. It took Arthur a few seconds to recover, and now with Alice, the three headed toward the lifeboat on the starboard side. Upon arrival, another officer told them, We can get the little boy in, but we can't get you in. All right, get him in, was Elizabeth's reply. Elizabeth and Alice headed for the next boat down, but there was not room in that one either. A sailor then pointed them to a boat that was the last one down the long line of swaying starboard-side boats. Elizabeth stumbled, but an officer helped her back up and dragged her to the last boat. That officer then helped her into the lifeboat number 17 with Alice Scott. Elizabeth accidentally stepped on someone's leg in the process. The sailors seemed to be having much trouble with the rollers and were taking too long to get the lifeboat underway. Elizabeth hitched up her skirts and got out. Alice remained in the boat. The lifeboat finally managed to get underway, but to Elizabeth's horror, the boat overturned and threw passengers against the side of the ship before they landed in the water. She saw Alice go under, but never saw her come back up. Immediately she started to recite the twenty-third psalm. Next to her, three Irish girls who had been singing There is a green hill not far away, cheerily during lunch, were now singing the same song in thin, frightened voices, as if to reassure themselves that land was near. Elizabeth finally managed to find a lifeboat that got away safely. Lifeboat number twenty-one. Witnessing the horror, she recited the twenty-third psalm again. She then saw a man in the water not far from them, and she asked the mate, "'Can't we help him?' But the mate replied, "'No.' Adamant, Elizabeth snapped back with a "'Yes, we can.' The officer took a long look at Elizabeth and ordered the rowers to stop. With a very hard struggle, the occupants of the lifeboat pulled the man in. With Elizabeth at the oars, her lifeboat made toward Queenstown. Even though they were heavily laden, her boat managed to make the fastest time of any of the lifeboats. It was not long before they came upon the fishing smack wanderer, also known as the Peel 12. Her lifeboat was the first to reach the fishing trawler. Not long after Elizabeth stepped aboard Peel 12, another lifeboat drifted by with only three persons in it. A petty officer of her boat asked the people in the lifeboat what had happened, and the answer was that the boat had capsized and they needed help to row back to rescue some of the drowning. "'I can't spare anyone!' the officer shouted back, shaking his head. "'You can spare me!' Elizabeth shouted, and having carefully measured the distance between the Peel 12 and the lifeboat, Elizabeth jumped the gap between the two and grabbed an oar before anyone could do or say anything to stop her. Elizabeth and her four companions fished about forty people out of the water. She also saw the vessels City of Exeter and Etonian approaching, and then vanish back on the horizon.' She thought grimly that the ships, and she is quoted here, "'knew nothing of our predicament.'" In reality, a third ship in the area, the Narragansett, had spotted what seemed to be a torpedo across her bows and warned the ships away. When Elizabeth and her companions came back to the Peel 12, she was helped back on board and greeted with cheers. Upon reaching land, Elizabeth broke down. She was treated for exposure and taken to the Westbourne Hotel she stayed there for the night. She stayed in Queenstown long enough to identify the body of Alice Scott. She then found Alice's son, Arthur, who was to be taken to relatives in Nelson, England, by a missionary. When word reached Connecticut that the Lusitania had been torpedoed, all her son-in-law said was, well, she was told not to sail, but you know how it is. Some people have to learn the hard way. After a period of recuperation, Elizabeth reported for war duty at the Royal Arsenal Ammunition Factory in Blackburn, Lancashire, England. She eventually returned to the United States and after a five-hour wait on Ells Island, she was readmitted. Elizabeth Duckwork remained active in her later years before passing in her sleep in Taftville, Connecticut, in 1955. She was 92 years old. Then there's the story of Kathleen Kay. Kathleen Kay was a 16-year-old girl from England born June 30th, 1898. She was able to get into a lifeboat, and she helped row that lifeboat when a sailor fainted, but she continued, most of her time, comforting and assisting her sisters in misfortune. Throughout the disaster, Kathleen stayed calm, cool, and collected, helping her fellow passengers deal with the tragedy that had just befallen them. Having had such a traumatic experience at a young age would influence most people to avoid ocean travel, but Kathleen didn't stop her traveling adventures. Later, as a young woman, she traveled to California, where she met her future husband, the artist Carl William Brandine. Brandine and Kathleen traveled the world, eventually stopping their explorations because of the impending Second World War. Carl Brandine, a World War I soldier, and Kathleen are buried at the Arlington National Cemetery. Then there was second cabin passenger Professor Joseph Mirajal, who was convinced that the second explosion had been caused by the torpedo detonating illegal munitions. He had put his family aboard Lifeboat 21 after seeing Lifeboat 17 spill. Marichal, then aged 38, was a professor of Romance Languages traveling from Kingston, Ontario, Canada to Birmingham, England with his wife Jessie, his daughters Eve and Phyllis, and his son Maurice. He and his family were at lunch when the torpedo hit. Marichal believed that the second explosion following the torpedo impact was caused by exploding ammunition, and he testified to that during the Mersey Inquiry, but the British assessors, Not wishing for any such suspicions to seem credible, did what they could do to destroy his reputation. After surviving the disaster, Marischal enlisted to fight in the First World War to rehabilitate his reputation, and was killed in action at the Battle of the Somme in nineteen sixteen. His family escaped in Lifeboat twenty one and was rescued by Wanderer, also known as Peel Eleven. As the Lusitania sank, Lifeboat Eleven became flush with the water, "'where fleeing passengers and crew now scrambled aboard. "'Oliver Bernard and third-class passenger "'Francis Luker jumped in. "'Francis Luker, thirty years old, "'was a post office worker in the Saskatoon area of Canada, "'going to Britain to enlist. "'He was originally from England "'and did not have any family in Canada. "'He made friends with the two men "'with whom he shared a cabin aboard the Lusitania. "'On the last day, his friends decided to take a nap around 1.30, "'while he stayed in the covered alleyway on the third-class deck.' He claimed to have seen the periscope and two torpedoes strike the ship, sending up clouds of smoke and steam. He recalled passengers rushing to the starboard side to see what had happened, only to be thrown into a heap by the ship's lurching, and then pitched into the sea by a second lurch. Luker stated that he avoided this fate by holding on to a piece of iron fixed to the woodwork on deck. He then made his way through the ship to the second class to find a life belt, and claimed to have passed the nursery forward on sea deck. Luker was about to run in to rescue a baby he saw inside, but just then the ship lurched and the door jammed shut. He couldn't open it. He went outside on the starboard side and saw one lifeboat that was too full to enter and another that had pitched everyone inside of it into the sea. The lifeboat he spotted was number 11, and he jumped into it. At the time, the boat was a distance away from the mother ship, so Lucre pulled the boat hook to the ship to bring the lifeboat closer to the Lusitania to allow more people into the lifeboat. Phyllis Wickings Smith tossed her baby Nancy to him. He also caught another child thrown to him whose identity Luker did not know. The boat rowed off, but only narrowly escaping, being dragged under by the wireless masts, belonging to the Marconi. After the ship went down, he was obliged to change boats five times and helped Ian Holburn aboard another lightboat. Luker would remember that one of the boats he was in had a defective plug and he was waist-deep in water. His last lifeboat was number 15, which was picked up by the Fishing Smack Wanderer, also known as Peel 12. He was then transferred to the larger Flying Fish, which arrived in Queenstown at about 11.30 p.m. that night. Luca returned to Saskatoon by taking the Orduna to New York in September of 1915. He resumed his job at the post office. On the afternoon of July 17, 1917, only two years later, Luker went swimming in the Saskatchewan River, where others were already swimming. Henry Berger of Saskatoon saw Luker take a dive, but he didn't come up. Berger told the boys with him to get help, while Berger unsuccessfully attempted to find Luker. Sergeant of Police McIntosh located Luker 25 minutes later, but it was too late to save him. Coroner Dr. John A. Vallens attributed Luker's death to drowning due to cramps. Then there was David Alfred Thomas and his secretary, Arnold Reese Evans. They saw a woman standing by with a baby who seemed frozen and unable to save herself. Thomas pushed the woman and her baby into lifeboat 11 before he and his secretary jumped in also. David Alfred Thomas, 59, was a British member of Parliament traveling aboard Lusitania with his daughter, Margaret Mackworth, and his secretary, Arnold Reese Evans. On board, they also became friends with Dr. Howard Fisher and his sister-in-law, Dorothy Connor, who were traveling to France to work in the field hospitals during the war. Father and daughter were separated during the sinking, but both survived, as did Fisher and Connor. Margaret Cox, 27, was a British citizen and Irish national living in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. She was traveling with her 17-month-old son Desmond to Ireland to visit a friend, Mrs. Hobcroft, in Dalkey, Dublin. As Margaret entered lifeboat 15 with her son Desmond, she feared that the ship's funnel would fall on top of them. Under the command of First Officer Arthur Rowland Jones, lifeboat 15 was safely launched. Only six lifeboats, numbers 1, 11, 13, 15, 19, and 21, were successfully lowered from the starboard side. As you already know, some of Lusitania's collapsible lifeboats floated off as the great ship sank, providing refuge for many of those in the water. Both mother and son survived the Lusitania sinking, escaping in lifeboat 15, which was later picked up by the wanderer. During the voyage, Margaret and Desmond had become acquainted with Emily and Barbara Anderson. Margaret and Desmond were at lunch when the torpedo hit. Everyone in the dining room made for the door, but a steward told her to go back, as there was plenty of time. Margaret went back, but upon seeing the mass of people crowded around the staircase, she asked another steward what to do, as she had to get her baby away. This decision to get a second opinion very likely saved her life. He told her to get up onto the deck and get a life jacket. Margaret found herself and Desmond on the port side of the ship, the high side, where she saw the crew attempting to ready the boats there. Michael Ward of Pittsburgh helped her to a boat, and she was holding up a delicate lady who had two children with one hand while cradling Desmond in the other. As the boats on the high side could not be lowered, she was told to go to the starboard side. Along the way down the now slanting deck, Desmond was knocked out of her arms several times. A young man about 23 years old helped her pick up Desmond every time she lost hold of him. On the starboard side, Margaret was turned away from one boat because it was too full and was sent to a second boat. She was going to be turned away from the second boat, number 15, but she refused to budge. She insisted, you will have to take the baby, I'll be all right. Someone took the baby and Mrs. Minnie Wilson caught Desmond. Margaret had no recollection of how she got into the lifeboat and thought that perhaps she'd been thrown in. Men had to cut the ropes holding the lifeboat to the ship to get it away. She thought that the first lifeboat that she'd been turned away from had upset. Their lifeboat went right under the funnels and the people in the boat feared that they would be drawn down by the suction. Their lifeboat was filled past capacity with 85 people. From their boat, Margaret saw a woman, Margaret Guire, get sucked down one of the funnels, and blown back to the surface. The men worked hard to row the boat away from the ship as the Lusitania disappeared. There was much excitement in the boat, but Margaret didn't hear much crying. Baby Desmond became hysterical. Because their boat was overcrowded, they could not take in all the people appealing to them for help. Margaret, feeling helpless, had to cover her ears. Lifeboat 15 rowed to another boat that only had one man in it, and transferred some of its people into it. Ellen Burden told Margaret that she saw the submarine surface and fly its colors. Margaret spoke very highly of the calm composure of the women in her boat and the kind treatment the survivors received in Queenstown. Margaret and Desmond were in Dublin during the Easter Rising of 1916, just a year later. They were in Phoenix Park when a man in front of them was mowed down by machine gun fire. Margaret Cox died in 1978 at 90, her husband Samuel a year later. Then there's the story of Mr. Isaac Lehman. Isaac Lehman, 36, was a United States citizen from New York. He had three brothers, Dylan, Martin, and Henry. His own statement from the Mixed Claims Commission states that he was en route to Paris, France, to negotiate a sale of a large quantity of cloth to the French government for military uniforms. Lehman's cabin on the Lusitania was D-48, and his ticket was 46158. He survived the sinking of the last voyage of the Lusitania. Earlier in the voyage, Lehman was disappointed that the ship was traveling so slowly. He asked First Officer Arthur Rowland-Jones the reason for the ship's lackluster performance, and was told that they were not running all the boilers because the crew was picked up here and there as they could get them, and they were very scarce over in Liverpool at that time. On the night of May 6th, Lehman was present at George Kessler's party. He testified that Kessler asked Staff Captain Anderson if the passengers were ever going to be drilled for the lifeboats. That is that captain's decision, was all Anderson could say. The talk of submarines had so thoroughly unnerved layman that he spent all night completely dressed in his stateroom. The following is his account from the day of the sinking, May seventh, 1915. As usual, I had luncheon at one o'clock in the main dining room, situated on D deck. After luncheon was through, about 1.30, I went upstairs on A deck to the smoking room and sat by the window on the English side of the land. We had passed the Irish coast some hours before, and were just coming into sight of the English side. I wrote some letters home, and had just finished writing these letters and some postal cards. During this time I had the pleasure of holding a conversation with the late Dr. Pearson, talking about this wonderful new organ in America. I later spoke with Mr. Medbury, who sat beside me, and we discussed several matters. All of a sudden we heard a noise like the boom of a cannon, and I said to Medbury, "'They've got us at last!' HE THOUGHT I WAS JOKING. MY ANSWER WAS, LET'S GET OUTSIDE, AND WE'LL SEE IF I'M JOKING. I RUSHED THROUGH THE SMOKING ROOM TO THE DECK, AND TURNED AND SAW THE TORPEDO MAKING DIRECT FOR US. THE TIME FROM THE NOISE OF THE REPORT, UNTIL IT STRUCK US, WAS LESS THAN A MINUTE. I SAID, LET'S GET AWAY FROM HERE. IT LOOKS LIKE IT'S GOING TO STRIKE RIGHT UNDER US. I DO NOT KNOW WHAT BECAME OF MR. Medbury AFTER THAT. I went to the other side of the deck to the last lifeboat, number 20, on the port side, before the second class came along. Everybody by this time was on deck, and the boat was still shaking like a leaf from the effect of being hit by the torpedo. When I reached the first lifeboat, nobody had made any effort to get it ready for lowering, and I suggested to the different gentlemen around there to get it ready. A great many people got in the lifeboat, and there were three or four men at each rope to lower the boat, one man standing there with a hatchet in his hand to cut the blocks. One side started lowering the boat, and the other did not, and as a result, before anybody knew what had happened, the other fellows let go, and the rope broke, which held the lifeboat and threw everybody into the sea, the boat finally breaking from the davits itself and then dropping into the water on their heads. After I had seen this, I rushed down the deck to the entrance which is known as the Grand Entrance and ran down to the D deck to my stateroom, known as D-48, to get a life preserver. When I reached there, the boat had commenced already to settle. Somebody certainly had been in my room already and taken my life preserver. I don't know whatever possessed me, but I looked in my dress suit case and got hold of my revolver, as I figured this would come in handy in case there was anybody not doing the proper thing. I then walked up to B-Deck and met my steward, by the name of William Barnes, on the way, and I told him to get me a life preserver. I waited for him to get this, and he brought it and put it on for me, saying that it would come in handy. I walked out on B-deck and met the ship's doctor, James McDermott, and the ship's purser, who told me that there was not a chance for the boat to go down, that I should remain calm, and furthermore said it was foolish to have my life preserver on. However, I did not take very much notice of this outside the fact that I laughed at them and said it was better to be prepared if anything did happen. This was the last I saw of these men. I understand they were drowned. Purser McCubbin, and Doctor McDermott had been calmly puffing on cigarettes. At this time, water was already surging along the starboard side and flooding onto the sea deck. He then made his way to boat deck port side. He reached the boat deck and saw that lifeboat 16 was gone. He then looked aft to lifeboat 18. Thirty to forty people were sitting in the lifeboat, and no one was lowering the boat. With the Lusitania's bows plunging underneath the water, Layman demanded of an axe-wielding seaman. Why aren't you putting this boat into the water? Who has charge of this lifeboat?" The seaman answered, It's the captain's orders not to launch any boats. Furious, Lehman took out his revolver and waved it in plain sight of everyone. He said, To hell with the captain! Don't you see the boat is sinking? And the first man that disobeys my orders to launch this boat, I'll shoot to kill. I drew my revolver, and the order was then obeyed. The seaman did not argue any more, and swung the axe to release the pin holding the boat. The boat was just about being started on its way down when the ship gave an awful lurch. There were about 30 to 40 men and women standing on the collapsible boat where I was. In coming back toward the ship smashed all these people who were trying to get into the boat up against the smoking room, killing or badly hurting pretty much all of them. I being knocked down as well and hurting my leg severely. But I succeeded in crawling out and was able to hold onto the rails When the water from the funnels commenced pouring over us. Lehman saw blood streaming from his injured foot. The crew regained control of lifeboat 18 and were easily lowering it when a man in the boat stood up and shouted, Don't you drop this boat! Just then the crew lost control and lifeboat 18 threw its load of people into the water. Lehman then grabbed onto a nearby rail but the water commenced coming over the smokestack and washed him right off the deck and into the ocean. The water probably did not come over the smokestack, but most likely was swirling around the ventilators. His testimony read, A terrific explosion occurred in the front of the steamer, and then I noted the lifeboat which had killed these people had gone back into its original position. By this time the ship was sinking fast, and this boat finally got away safely. I was then thrown high into the water, free and clear of all the wreckage, and I then went down twice with the suction of the steamer. "'and the second time I came up, "'I was four hundred or five hundred feet away from the ship. "'I clung to an oar, "'and just then I saw the Lusitania take her final plunge. "'It sounded like a terrible moan in the water. "'Immediately after she sank, "'there were hundreds of people struggling in the water, "'praying and crying for help. "'There was wreckage all around, "'old chairs, wood, all kinds of smaller items. "'But taken all in all, there was very little large wreckage. "'The water was not so cold, at least to me, and it was a lovely day, the sun shining and not a ripple on the water. Had the sea been the least bit rough, I don't believe that out of the entire lot that were living at the time she went down, fifty would have been saved, as most of the boats that did get away had no plugs in them, and the collapsible boats that were floating had no oars in them. The sights in the water around me defy description. Right near me were several men who watched with me for help. We saw, about a mile distant from the wreck, what we thought was a sailboat, "'which kept our hopes up. "'But we soon found out that this must have been the periscope "'of the submarine which sunk us, watching us. "'In the water, he found a baby next to him, "'and he and another man lifted the baby onto a steamer chair floating by. "'The two men managed to keep the baby alive for an hour and a half, "'but eventually the child succumbed to exposure. "'Towards five o'clock, torpedo boats and other boats came to our aid. "'I managed to keep alive by using my arms and my left leg to keep warm.' As towards sundown, the water commenced to get very cold, and I became very numb. I was only picked up by Chief Officer Jones about 6.15 in the evening, having been in the water from 2.28, as my watch stopped at that time, almost four hours. I generally weigh about 200 pounds. I was in the water with all my clothes on, shoes and life preserver, and when I was picked up, it took six men to haul me in the boat. I had become so heavy. After leaving the lifeboat, I was transferred First to the wanderer, Peel 12, "'then to the tender known as the Flying Fox, "'also called the Flying Fish, "'and after leaving the scene of the disaster, "'we did not arrive in Queenstown until 11 o'clock that night. "'We tied up at the Cunard Dock, "'and the arrangement for the reception of the survivors "'was just as hard and difficult "'as it was to get saved from the Lusitania. "'The reason for the difficulty "'was that the captain would not let anyone off the boat "'until he received clearance from the proper authorities.' Passengers led by Charles Laureate overrode the captain's orders, as many people on the boat were in need of immediate medical attention. While in Queenstown, he stayed in the Queen's Hotel and was asked to share a room with three men. Lehman also received no attention at all and nothing to eat at all. Thus, he thought it best to make his way to London as soon as he could. He took the one thirty train on Sunday for London via Kingstown. The boat train reached Holyhead at midnight, "'and London Monday morning at 6.30. "'Layman would offer these criticisms during the trials. "'In conclusion, I would say that on board the steamer "'when she was sinking there was very little panic. "'Everybody seemed to be resigned, "'but there was no real direction on the part of the officers "'or men who had charge of the boats. "'No one to command them and no one to give orders. "'The portholes on the D-deck were never closed, "'which I understand is the work of the stewards. "'This is one of the causes that the boat went down so quickly.' "'The greatest life-saving apparatus on the boat was the life-preservers. "'People ran around looking for them, but none could be found. "'Then the lifeboats were so heavy that it took ten men to handle one boat, "'and those who are not experienced in this work cannot very well get them out. "'Had a lot of life-drafts been thrown overboard before the sinking of the boat, "'and had not some of the officers and men in command issued orders not to lower the boats, "'and had some other members of the ship, who really believed that the steamer would not sink, "'done something to help?' a great many more lives would have been saved. We'll return with our story right after these sponsor messages. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. And now, back to our story. The public would later discover that the ocean liner was carrying supplies of boar among its cargo, 173 tons of it, to be specific. There were no mounted offenses aboard to protect it against enemy vessels. This was a cruise ship, to be sure, but here it was saddled with 173 tons of munitions bound for Britain, presumably under the guise of a commercial voyage. According to Stephen and Emily Gittleman's book, Alfred Gwynne Vanderbilt, the unlikely hero of the Lusitania, stowing weapons of war aboard commercial vessels had actually become common practice by 1915. In a stage of the war where wanton U-boat warfare could easily sink any and all transport ships supplying European allies with the tools they needed, alternatives had to be employed. Many ships, such as the Cameronia, had already been requisitioned by the Admiralty to become armed merchant cruisers or loaded heavily with ammunition, the Gittlemans asserted. The Germans maintained that despite also carrying citizens, the Lusitania was carrying weapons of war, which made her an enemy vessel, to them. The United Kingdom subsequently saw a groundswell of anti-German sentiment. As the First Lord of the British Admiralty, Winston Churchill, said that the poor babies who perished in the ocean struck a blow at German power more deadly than could have been achieved by the sacrifice of a 100,000 men. Moreover, American President Woodrow Wilson had already issued a diplomatic warning to Germany that if an American vessel or the lives of American citizens was lost without just cause, the United States would hold Germany to strict accountability. It should be mentioned, by September of that year, following the sinking of the Lusitania, Woodrow Wilson gave a speech in Philadelphia where he actually said that peace at this time is much preferable to war, and that peace made America a better country. Also in September of that year, Germany formally apologized for the sinking and vowed to curb its unregulated U-boat warfare activity. The resulting thinking was that for the time being, President Wilson was satisfied enough with this apology as to not declare war on Germany. And that feeling of peace and love apparently did last until 1917, but that was overturned by the finding of the Zimmermann telegram. British intelligence intercepted a telegram from German Foreign Minister Arthur Zimmermann to the German Minister of Mexico, Heinrich von Eckhart, which revealed that Germany was prepared to return to its previous model of wanton submarine warfare. All ships in the official war zone would be sunk, regardless of their civilian capacities, that telegram read. It also revealed that Germany was considering an alliance with Mexico if the U.S. sided with the European Allies. This telegram, in combination with the loss of 120 American passengers aboard the Lusitania, finally justified the Americans joining the war. Meanwhile, the ship's captain was accused of negligence and blamed for her destruction. It was alleged that he was given specific instructions regarding safety maneuvers, which he failed to follow. First Sea Lord Fisher asserted that, "'It's a certainty that Captain Turner is not a fool, but a knave. I hope that Turner will be arrested immediately after the inquiry, whatever the verdict.' It was concluded that Turner had ignored every safety precaution of which he'd been informed and was thus the cause for the ship's demise. According to Eric Larson, Arthur of Dead Wake, the last crossing of the Lusitania, the blame does not solely rest on the ship's captain, but rather on a covert British mission. In the Milton Keynes complex within Blutzley Park, where Alan Turing hacked the Nazi Enigma machine decades later, Brits deciphered German codebooks to mount anti-submarine espionage missions in a so-called Room 40. Larson's research has led him to believe that the British Intelligence Unit in Room 40 orchestrated a cover-up for the ship's sinking by blaming it on the Lusitania's captain in order to preserve its espionage program. Room 40 was the super-secret organization founded by the Admiralty to take advantage of the miraculous recovery of three German codebooks, Larson explained. Using those codebooks, they successfully intercepted and read German naval communications. Additionally, a British detective named William Pierpoint was assigned to board the Lusitania covertly to look for potential German agents in hiding. He did apprehend three such agents the day the ship launched. The question then becomes whether or not the British were aware of Germany's attack on the ocean liner before it happened, and if so, did they then allow it to happen? THE THINKING IS THAT HAD THEY INTERFERED, THEN THEY RAN THE RISK OF EXPOSING THEIR COVERT MISSION TO THE GERMANS. PERHAPS THEY TOO THOUGHT THAT IN ALLOWING THE GERMANS TO ATTACK A COMMERCIAL LINER, THEN POTENTIAL ALLIES LIKE THE AMERICANS WOULD HAVE A REASON TO JOIN IN THEIR WAR EFFORT. ONE THING IS FOR CERTAIN, HOWEVER, THE BRITISH BLAMED THE LUSITANIA'S CAPTAIN AS SOON AS THEY POSSIBLY COULD, WHICH, IN AND OF ITSELF, WARRANTS SOME SUSPICION. IT'S NOT EXACTLY CLEAR WHY THE ADMIRALTY WENT AFTER TURNER, SAID LARSON. "'but what is very clear from the record "'is that the Admiralty went after him immediately, "'within twenty-four hours. "'Turner was going to be made the scapegoat, "'which is odd, because the publicity value "'of laying the blame on Germany "'would have been enormous. "'When asked whether or not Larson believed "'that this meant that there was a British cover-up "'in place during the immediate aftermath "'of the ship's tragic sinking, "'he didn't dismiss the notion. "'Cover-up is a very contemporary term,' he said, "'but one of Churchill's top priorities "'when he was in the Admiralty.' "'was to keep Room 40 a secret, "'even to the point, as one of its members said, "'of not passing along actionable information "'that could have saved lives. "'Larson even referenced a prestigious naval historian "'who wrote a book about the top-secret Room 40 department. "'The man, long dead, had been interviewed "'and left behind a transcript in the Imperial War Museum in London, "'which essentially confirmed Larson's suspicions. "'I've thought and thought about this,' and there's no other way to think about it except to imagine some sort of conspiracy, the transcript read. And then there's this great article titled A Liberal Code of Whitewash from rmslusitania.com. While the rest of the world was engulfed in the First World War, the United States was officially a neutral country in 1915 that sold munitions to the British despite American neutrality laws. Such actions were officially illegal, and anyone who facilitated such an action would be jailed. In practice, however, sympathetic and business attuned Americans ignored those regulations and knowingly allowed the British to ship war goods out of the USA on ships like the Lusitania. The facts of the Lusitania's last crossing remain that the Admiralty did not do their utmost to protect it, that Lusitania was carrying munitions under the guise of a passenger ship, and that the ship suffered from a second, unexplained explosion and sank bow first in under 20 minutes. While one cannot definitely say that the second explosion was caused by the munitions in the cargo hold, even the suggestion of it would have been damning to the British cause. This, in combination with the aforementioned facts, would have blunted the horror of the German attack and brought into question Britain's practice of using women and children to ensure the delivery of their war cargo. With these revelations... United States could hardly be expected to continue to turn a blind eye to British munitions' running practices, and Britain's much-needed supply of war material would have been in serious danger of being cut. In light of this national threat, the inquests deliberately discarded testimony of witnesses who claimed that only one torpedo and that internal explosion sank the ship, and went on to destroy the reputation of second cabin passenger Joseph Marischal, who claimed that munitions were the source of the second explosion the cargo manifest may have been deliberately changed to end any speculation that the cargo was explosive, regardless of the cause of the second explosion. Eager to absolve the admiralty of negligence in handling Lusitania's last days, Churchill and Fisher were quick to pin as much blame on Captain Turner as possible, backdating admiralty orders, distorting geography, and hiring the best legal talent to prove Captain Turner guilty. The reputation of a man like Turner could hardly have mattered to Churchill and Fisher when the survival of Britain was at stake. Lord Mersey, who presided over the inquest, however, was aware of the political sensitivities during wartime, and made sure that everyone on the British side came out whitewashed, and that only the Germans were pronounced as the villains. And yet, the story does not end there. Certain documents and exchanges between Lusitania and the Admiralty, which undoubtedly would have painted the Admiralty as grossly negligent at best, remain classified to this day. Researchers, authors, and the general public still do not have access to these documents, which begs the question, what about the Lusitania's last voyage? What about the Lusitania's last voyage still needs to be classified more than a hundred years after her sinking? From Beasley's Room 40, page 122. The mysterious signals between the Admiralty and the Lusitania between 5th and 7th May may well hold the answer. The file seems to have been in the possession of the Admiralty as recently as 1972, and now it has vanished again. From Preston's Lusitania, an Epic Tragedy, page 384, it reads, Many of the Cunard Company's Lusitania files disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Some, but not all of them, have resurfaced and been purchased by the Cunard archives. Official files in Britain, the United States, and Germany give tantalizing leads that then disappear. Blank sheets inserted to preserve pagination sequences suggest that certain documents, like telegrams sent to and from the ship during her final voyage, have been removed. The authenticity of certain official documents or alleged statements is open to question. And this last comment might pique your interest. It was written as a Twitter response on 17th of December, 2012. If you want some official documentation that has never been seen before, try HTTP www.lusitania.net. Not only will you find a link to the Room 40 British Naval Intelligence records for U-20, but also the complete 24-page Supplementary Cargo Manifest for Lusitania's Final Voyage. There is also much new material concerning the U.S. to U.K. munitions traffic, too. As you just heard of the story, the Lusitania disaster set off a chain of events that led to the U.S. entering World War I. As word spread about the Lusitania's tragic fate, so did the outrage. American citizens were saddened and stunned, but not ready to rush to war. President Woodrow Wilson, as has been said, wanted to proceed with caution and remain neutral, while former President Theodore Roosevelt, demanded swift retaliation. In April 1917, the United States Congress voted to declare war on the Central Powers and enter World War I, and the war they called the War to End All Wars was finally ended two years later. We hope you enjoyed this episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We do appreciate reviews very much, So if you have a few moments, especially you Apple listeners, please do stop and send us a review. I'm also encouraging you to give our 1001 Stories for the Road a try. We recently started Mark Twain's story, A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, and I think you'll enjoy that very much. We're retelling it two chapters at a time. And it's a great story. It's doing very well for us. Until next Sunday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, everyone. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon.